We continue on in our series on Acts. Last week, we looked at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. We examined the scattering of the early church. And we saw a new level of hate and persecution directed toward the followers of Christ. Certainly, it's been there all along. We saw it as far back as the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That which opposes. That which rebels. But now we see that popular sentiment has been turned away from the church by the Jewish leaders. And this scattering, rather than hinder the gospel, seems as if it has opened new fields for the gospel. The unstoppable gospel. We also read how Philip, one of the seven deacons originally chosen to distribute bread, is now serving in a different way, by preaching to the Samaritans. These Samaritans appear often in the New Testament, mainly in the Gospels and here in the beginning of Acts. They are a people tied to the history and to the land of Israel, but according to the ancient writer Josephus, they did not see themselves as Jews or even Judeans. There were likely some ethnic ties, but in the workings of the Babylonian Empire, now gone, many tribes and peoples were exiled or transplanted, some of whom settled in Judea and became what was known as Samaritans. What anyone familiar with Judea in Luke's day would have known is that the Samaritans were different. They worshipped differently. And they had their own version of the Torah that they saw as the real law of God. And they were hated by the Jews. But for the Christians, even at this stage when they were likely all Jewish, the Samaritans had already been cast in a new light due to the example of Jesus. Jesus traveled through Samaria, which Jews did not do. Jesus spoke to Samaritans, which Jews would not do. Jesus preached to and did wonders among the Samaritans, who reacted more favorably than many Jews did to his message. With this example not yet distant in their memory, it's only natural. But at this point in history, it was commonplace to let such magic influence these magics were performed. The high magic of the day usually involves some sort of oracle, a person who acted as a conduit, whose spirit under the right circumstances would transcend the mortal plane and commune with the gods or the spirits of the dead, bringing back wisdom for the inquirer. Lower magics might involve different readings of natural or manufactured phenomena by a special individual to give insight or certain wonders of varying types. You might recall the magicians of Egypt in the book of Exodus, who acted as advisors as well as workers of strange feats. This sort of magic was still in existence during Jesus' day. And regardless of whether it was high or low, people were often caught up by it, often believed in it, often reacted strongly to it. Whatever methods Whatever service is offered, and whatever degree of deceit or true communion with the occult was involved, or is involved, people flock to such signs and wonders done among them. And those who practice such arts are not unaware of their influence. It was not uncommon for such people to become rich and powerful in ancient days. And even today, 
those who can suspend the disbelief of an audience are likely to profit. Successfully casting yourself as extraordinary is a quick ticket to fame and fortune. And among this group of special individuals, Simon has quite successfully utilized his specific practices. So much so that the people called him the power of God that is called great. Such a title was an indication by the people that Simon possessed or even embodied the highest degree of power. It is possible that they even saw him as a messianic figure, perhaps even as a god in the flesh. This zeal may have been fed by their recollections of Jesus doing signs among them. No doubt it is easy to get caught up in the excitement of great events. And as we read, they were encouraged to that effect by Simon, who was saying that he himself was somebody great. Into this excitement comes Philip, whose message and works completely upend the status quo. Remember back in verse 6 that the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. These same crowds, from the least to the greatest, had been paying attention to Simon, as we read in verse 10. Do we have some competition brewing? It would seem not. Picking up in verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. There is no contest. Even the magician, the one who amazed others, is amazed. And again, Remembering back to Exodus, we see the parallel. When Moses confronted Pharaoh, the Egyptian magicians rose up and performed signs in opposition to those given by God to affirm his message of freedom for the Israelites. And at first, it seemed as if the magicians were keeping up, right? But as God's power was continually displayed... We read in Exodus chapter 8, verse 18, that the magicians could not replicate God's works. Then, in chapter 9, verse 11, we see that the magicians themselves were afflicted so badly that they could not stand before Moses. And finally, in chapter 10, verse 7, we read that Pharaoh's servants, among whom the magicians were perhaps counted, advised Pharaoh to give in and let Moses and Israel go, pleading, do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? When the power of man comes up against the power of God, there is no contest. We know this, but we often forget how laughable the comparison is. Simon saw. Whatever works he performed that amazed the people, they were nothing to what God was doing through Philip. From back in verse 7, For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. This is no mere sleight of hand or clever fortune-telling or manufactured wonder. This is power. And Simon believes. He believes and he's baptized. Simon is willing to publicly throw in his lot with Philip, And go from being the great one 
to being a follower. How hard this may have been for Simon is hard to say. But whatever battles he may have had with his pride, Simon did not waste his time trying to oppose the power of God. This power, a power that is paving the way for a transformation in Samaria, is a power meant to testify, to signify the affirmation of the message. It was displayed previously among the apostles in astonishing ways. You'll recall in chapter 5 that it was acting so mightily that the people were placing the sick on the roadside so that Peter's shadow might fall upon them, bringing healing. A mighty power among the church, but not a power that began with the church. This is the same power that accompanied Jesus' ministry, the power that fed 5,000, the power that calmed a storm, the power that raised Lazarus from the dead. This power is evident among the believers scattered from Jerusalem. But its evidence among the believers of Samaria is not yet seen. And this is significant. As we see Simon interacting with all these events, we see that he's part of something much larger that's going on. Something that's new. Something that they've never seen before. To a fledgling church still coming to grips with their new identity in Christ, still trying to reconcile their old identity, which at this point is wholly Jewish, and doing so amidst great turmoil and persecution, the inclusion of the Samaritans in the body of believers must have taken some getting used to. The Jewish Christians had to overcome hundreds of years of prejudice in order to see themselves and their ancestral rivals as one, members of the same body. Certainly, the fact that the Samaritans were believing and being baptized was meaningful, but was it conclusive? The disciples had already seen many who followed Jesus turn and depart. It was possible as well that in the scattering following Stephen's death, some of those who had so eagerly taken the gospel to heart had decided that it was not worth the price. Regardless, there is now a major question looming over these new converts. Are they the same as the Jewish Christians? Let's continue from verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is a big deal, but not in a way that some who read this passage often like to make it. We could easily get caught up here in the examination of this laying on of hands and the receiving of the Holy Spirit, how it all works. Certainly, there are passages elsewhere in Scripture that would seem to relate, and we could seek to piece together a theory of how the process of salvation occurs and whether this receipt of the Spirit is a separate and or higher occurrence than what takes place at conversion and what significance there is in the laying on of hands. But to do that is to misread this passage, which is a passage that is written to testify to God's work in the early church. The coming of the apostles is an act of kindness born of the Holy Spirit. Earlier in his career as a disciple, John had asked Jesus 
if he should call down fire from heaven upon a village of Samaritans. No doubt believing that God's power would be well employed in such a task. Now he's traveling with Peter to Samaria to lend apostolic authority to their conversion. The Samaritans would now have the witness of the leaders of the church to attest to their membership in the church. Even more important, however, is that God's Spirit himself bears witness to the conversion of the Samaritans. Luke does not detail what this event or series of events looked like. But he did detail the coming of the Spirit upon the disciples in Jerusalem. And he will detail the coming of the Spirit again later on. No spoilers. We can assume to that we can assume that the effect upon the Samaritans was similar. Perhaps they too prophesied or spoke in tongues, performed wonders of their own, or were simply transformed from those with worldly eyes to those with kingdom vision, now fully equipped for lives of service to God. Whatever it looked like, it was conclusive. There was now nothing legitimate standing in the way of them being regarded as members of the body of Christ. And can we just stop for a moment and marvel at the work of God? Think of how much bitterness there was between the Jews and the Samaritans. A true blood feud. In times past, the Samaritans had raided Jewish caravans and desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. Israel, in response during a period of independence, had destroyed both the Samaritan temple and the city in which it was located. Both groups under the occupation had appealed to Rome and gotten members of the other group severely punished. By Jesus' time, Samaria had become so loathed, as I mentioned, that to get from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south, the Jews would travel east, cross the Jordan River, head south on the opposite side, and then cross back over again to avoid Samaria. That was no small journey. It was no safe journey. Crossing the rivers themselves in that day was dangerous. We often think that that kind of hatred is beyond healing. Aren't we prone, even if it's only in our own hearts and minds, to give up on certain people or certain situations? To assume that because that's how it's been, that that's how it will always be. We'd be right to if God didn't get a say. But God always gets a say. More than that, God always gets the last word. Jesus did not avoid Samaria, and his ministry there was explosive. It's not hard to imagine that his ministry there may have made Simon's career easier, as the people would have been excited to believe in the supernatural and receptive to those who spoke with authority after seeing and hearing Jesus. But in the same way, it's likely that Simon paved the way for Philip. God is the Lord of the harvest, and no one knows how to cultivate a crop like he does. Not only did he patiently sow seeds and cultivate them in Samaria, but he did the same in the hearts of the disciples, bringing them to and through Samaria with Jesus showing them the kind of change that only God can produce and preparing them to see the Samaritans 
as a people whom God loves. Simon is in the middle of all of this. He has believed and been baptized. He is traveling around with Philip, humbling himself as he recognizes a power greater than his own. But as we discover upon reaching the climax of the narrative, he completely misses the point. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon's response to God's work in Samaria is the response of a magician. Magicians then and now make their living not only from the crowds they can attract, but also by marketing their skills or their tricks to other magicians, buying and selling those secrets that they see as profitable. This is Simon's problem. It's a problem of vision. He has seen what is happening in Samaria. More than that, he's been willingly swept along by it, but his vision is impaired, causing him to misunderstand three things. He misunderstands the source of the works that he has seen. He misunderstands the purpose for which that power is made manifest. And he misunderstands what he's even asking to become. And it's a sad irony that as one who was called the power of God, Simon did not recognize what that power truly was. In the world of the magician, power is a tool to be used, even if that power only exists due to the misperceptions of the audience. But having gone so far as to recognize that the works that Philip is doing and the gift given through the apostles are greater than anything he is capable of, Simon does not see that this power is not something to be manipulated. His offer to the apostles reflects the pagan understanding of the supernatural, that it can be controlled and directed through human will and effort. And while we might view this offer as silly in its ignorance, Simon's act has been so often repeated that this biblical example has become the definition of the act of seeking to purchase from man what only God can provide, called very appropriately, simony. We might have trouble pinpointing simony in today's culture, thinking it gone with medieval times when merchants or lords would fund cathedrals in order to gain the favor of the priests. But man's sinful nature hasn't changed. We, too, are prone to reduce God's power either by attributing it not to God at all, but to natural causes, or by responding to it, not with awe and worship to God alone, but with calculation and ambition for our own ends. And in seeking to serve ourselves, 
Where else would we in our earthly mindsets turn in order to try and pull the levers of heaven but to God's church? How often do we try to barter with the church who we can see and who we can deceive thinking that somehow we might receive what God offers on our terms rather than his? How often do we try to make what we have already received from God fit into an agenda wholly our own while seeking to look like faithful Christians? We get in our comfortable self-serving rut or have those things that we really want to chase after. But we recall some mention of God's authority and his commands in the Bible. So we sprinkle a bit of Christian living in for flavor and convince ourselves that if our fellow churchgoers aren't complaining, then we're okay. We volunteer, so it's cool. We show up whenever we're on the list. Maybe we show up every Sunday. Therefore, we've done our part. We've fulfilled our end. We don't need to worry about everything else we're doing with our lives. We've given something to God, and God's people are none the wiser, so we're good. God will bless us with his peace and his favor, right? You have to wonder just who we fooled ourselves into thinking God is in these moments. Simon seemingly acts as though God is not the supreme being, but rather the illusion covering the magician's trick. He sees God's power as something to obtain from humans through earthly effort and for human ends rather than the activity of the living God who moves unhindered through the chaos of man, making his will manifest and working in power through humans for one purpose, to glorify himself. That is a frightening thing to misunderstand. The apostles are performing works of power, but it is they who are tools in the hands of the master. And this is both the most ridiculous and the saddest part of Simon's request. He doesn't understand what it means to wield the power of God. All Simon can see is crowds in awe, following, pressing in to be near to these men. He sees words spoken and hands laid with marvelous effect. How grand it must be to walk in Peter's shoes. Who wouldn't want to live such a life? Simon only knew. If only he understood the hatred that he was calling down upon himself. The persecution he was inviting. If he truly knew what it meant to be who Peter and John were and to do what Peter and John were doing. One wonders if he would have been following Philip at all in the first place. To be beaten, imprisoned, tortured, torn apart by lions, burned to death, crucified. To be a tool in God's hands is to bear a cross. Not simply as a burden, but as a sentence of death. Philip and Peter and John are not indulging themselves in what life has to offer. They're forsaking it, counting it as nothing. They know that it is nothing because they've seen what is better. But Simon cannot. 
And Peter's rebuke is harsh. Harsh enough that we might think back to chapter 5 and cringe a little, recalling what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. We'd be right to. Again, we're seeing an interaction that speaks plainly to something serious that threatens the integrity of the church. Rather than seeking to lie to God as Ananias and Sapphira did, Simon wants to control God. Simon wants to minimize God. Simon wants to pervert God's church into an act, God's mission into theater for his own gain. Peter disassociates the work of God from Simon, and Simon from the work of God using language reminiscent of the Old Testament and pronunciations of people being cut off from Israel for their sin. It is direct. It is strong. And it speaks not only to Simon's actions, but to his motivations. And many here would want to stop and try to analyze Simon's words and Peter's words and try to make a judgment of Simon's salvation. Many would likely see it as an easy judgment to make. But again, to make this the focus of this passage would be for us to miss the point as well. The point is that there is more than one way to respond to the gospel. Recall the parable of the sower. Just as the seed was sown over many different types of soil, so we too, in our human inconsistency, respond in varying ways to God's word. We know this. We've seen it in others. And I dare say we may have seen it in ourselves. It is plain that the gospel is not just to have weight in our lives until we pray a little prayer and accept Jesus' gift of salvation. The gospel is heart-altering, mind-changing, life-defining in its scope and its authority. And that's what this message is trying to illuminate. All too often when we come up against what God's word says about who we are or ought to be, about how the world truly is and how we are to live in it, we find out how much authority we're giving the gospel over our lives. We react to challenges not with peace founded on God's eternal sovereignty, but by trying to retain as much control as we can and complaining when things don't go our way. Rather than base our joy on God's goodness and his lavish mercy, which he is continually showing to us, we try to build little kingdoms for ourselves thinking that the things we achieve or obtain will satisfy. Instead of seeing ourselves as slaves to righteousness, a people whose purpose is to follow our Lord wherever he leads, we see ourselves, our lives, even the church and the word of God itself as things to be used for our gain. But does Simon change? We want to know, right? His reply to Peter's rebuke is certainly not what we might expect. Peter tells him to repent and pray to the Lord. But Simon asks Peter to pray for him. Perhaps he's simply taking all the help he can get. Or perhaps he's still thinking of Peter as the great man who must be appealed to. The substance of his request is also a little unsettling. He seems to want to avoid the consequences of his blindness and selfishness rather than to turn from it. 
He seems to want the benefit without the cost. He seems to want the adulation without change. But we don't know. And God's word is not given to us in order that we might have food for speculation. The end of this passage is the counterpoint to the story of Simon. It breaks away from Simon as suddenly as it turned to him and moves on. Because Simon is the contrast. Verse 25. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. The story of Simon begins with the preaching of gospel, and it ends with the preaching of gospel. Simon is simply the contrast by which we see what God is doing. He's changing people. Look at Simon in contrast to his fellow Samaritans. He reflects their awe, but not their joy. Rather, he is calculating and ambitious, and as Peter proclaims, he is full of bitterness and captive to sin. He sees the gall of bitterness, that gall, that's intestinal juices. It's a nasty kind of word with a nasty kind of reality. It speaks to harshness. So many things in our lives can turn us that way, can't they? Can turn us into a people who see life simply as something to get what you can out of it and then get out. All Simon gets out of the gospel is that it contains insider information. The Samaritans, however, receive heart transformation. Let us also see Simon again in contrast to the disciples. Simon wants the power. He wants to draw a crowd. The disciples want to draw a crowd too, but not so that they might put on a show. The disciples want to preach the gospel. The disciples want people to know that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus has what they need. Beyond settling the Jew and Samaritan dispute, beyond the occupation of Rome, beyond hunger and death and sickness, Jesus is the answer. And the disciples are turning their lives upside down in order to conform to the mission they've been given. They're changing their ways of thinking. They're changing their ways of acting. They're willing to accept whatever it takes. Peter and John proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus. This was their passion and their purpose. It's what got them out of bed in the morning. It's what let them face persecution and death. And it was their joy, just as it was the Samaritans' joy. An unwavering contentment and satisfaction welling up in them, based wholly on the knowledge that God's goodness and power displayed in Christ had provided for them an inheritance that could not be taken away and that no earthly suffering could outweigh. It's true that the early church faced trials. And this first period of persecution was likely one of their most challenging times because they did not yet see the result. We can very easily read and reflect on how hard they must have had it, but recall that they too are being swept along by what God is doing. Not just observing the miracles and wondering at them like Simon, but seeing and experiencing the formation of a new people set apart for God. 
They're swept along. They're propelled. Church, does the gospel propel you? It ought to. It ought to be the motivating factor of your entire being. It ought to trump everything else. Jesus set the priorities plainly. It should be more important than your family relationships. It should be the measure by which you plan out each step. It should deny you great pleasures, perhaps even riches and fame, perhaps even comfort and safety. And all this should fill you with joy. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's not just good news. It's the only good news that really matters. That overcomes all the bad news. That speaks to every situation, every life. And it is the embodiment of God's power. It is what changes. It is what recreates. And it will be better for you and for your family if you make obedience to the gospel first in your life. It will allow you to clearly see those things that are worthless and those that are worthy of your time and effort. It will remove the blindness from your eyes and let you see the depth of your sin, the deceitfulness of your own heart, and the joy there is in repentance and in denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. Can you see what the gospel is? Not Christian culture. Not praying for your meals and for sick relatives. Not good deeds and clean language. The gospel is the power of God. It is the same power that created the world. Powerful enough to penetrate our hard hearts and recreate us in the image of Christ. It is the truth that God's love is greater than our wickedness and rebellion. That Jesus' life and death and resurrection are more powerful than sin and death. That being given over completely to the service of God, even at the cost of our lives, is the most wonderful thing we might ever partake of. I hope and pray this morning that as we have seen the effect of the gospel on Samaria and on the early church, and as we have compared and contrasted it with Simon and with our own hearts, that we would also see the gospel itself, the good news of Christ's lordship and his love. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would move among this body to tie us ever closer in love and devotion to that gospel, allowing it to rule over our lives and change us day by day. Yes, it will cost you more than you know, but it will gain you more than you can imagine. Mighty God, may your gospel be before our eyes. It is the old, old story, but it is also what sees us through moment by moment. May we look to it, reflect on it, apply it, live under it. As we see the gospel go forth in this book of the Bible, May the gospel go forward in our own lives as well. Taking us to places we never thought we would go. 
removing from our hearts those things we never thought we could be rid of. Tearing down our idols. Giving us new vision. May we not treat you as someone to be manipulated, but as the one who is over all, the one who sees all, the one who deserves our allegiance. God, be with us as we go. Show us your gospel in our own lives each day. Thank you, Lord, for your love, that the gospel is the declaration of your love throughout human history. You've made a way. You are so good to us. May we see it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.